Hello and welcome to series two of the plant-based business podcast brought to you by Feevolution. In the show, we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business. I'm Damien Clarkson and I'm here today with my co-host, Judy Nadell. Each week on this show, we speak to a range of entrepreneurs and investors who are passionate about creating positive plant-powered change in the world. And this week, we speak to one of our brand heroes, Simon Coley, co-founder of Karma Drinks. We've been following these guys since the beginning of their journey, so it's a real pleasure for us to have Simon on the podcast. He is a native of New Zealand and Simon, along with his co-founders, are really on a mission to disrupt the drinks industry. And they've built a brand totally obsessed with supply chain and support for their Karma Foundation that is based in Sierra Leone. So in this interview, Simon speaks candidly about the following. Finding the balance between ethics and making a profit, the importance of branding and for purpose-driven storytelling, the work of their foundation and the important role this has in their business, fair trade and organic certification, and adapting their business in the wake of COVID-19. Look guys, we love this interview and we think Simon is a true brand maverick. So we can't wait to see where Karma Drinks goes in the future. Sit back and enjoy. Great, thanks, and um, thanks for the invitation. It's good, cool. to, good to meet you both. Yeah, yeah great we, to meet you. We've been big fans of your drinks for many years, you know, as um, I am partial to a can of Coke. So firstly, how, how are you guys holding up in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak? Been busier than I thought it would be. <clears throat> Somehow I'd been looking forward to taking it easy since we weren't going to be open. <laughs> but that's been the opposite, like... The um, the team have really been busy trying to figure out how we get drinks to people. That's kind of been after making sure everyone's well um, and trying to engage in all the, the sort of support mechanisms we can and be supportive. Uh, the big priority for us has been still selling drinks because for us, selling drinks also means we can support the beneficiaries that we fund from those sales beyond the people we employ. And, you know, since the reason we're doing this is because we have a foundation that delivers all of the benefit back to growers, especially in uh, Sierra Leone where our cola comes from, but also in Sicily where we get lemons from, and Sri Lanka where we get ginger from, and India where we get sugar from. We've got this sort of virtuous circle that gives us the right to call ourselves karma. We want to make sure we keep it rolling in the right direction. So even though our sales have dropped, you know, massively you know to like 90 percent 95 percent of what we normally do because most of the custom we have is in casual dining you know as in premium outlets we're very quickly trying to build our online retail presence we've got it you know our sales through amazon are gradually increasing we're just trying to engage people in a in a more virtual world and it's a really good challenge for us because we've been meaning to do this for a while and now we absolutely have to yeah, I may have spoken to a few founders who have said that it's taken a global pandemic to kickstart their direct-to-consumer business. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's always been there. But you know what? You deal with the people that you engage with the most. And up till now, our success has been going to meet people who own restaurants or cafes, or, you know, in some case retail. But, you know, most of the people we connect with do so through the casual dining scene. Uh, I think it maybe is partly... Because obviously you, you, you as a founder are very passionate about mm. this, but it really comes across when you get a can of Karma Cola or 
any calmer drink you know the branding it jumps out it feels like there's a, a story there and it obviously lends itself to going into the physical retail locations meeting with buyers and saying look at this thing it's completely unique and different it's interesting isn't it? i think you know for the context of this podcast having that story to tell and actually being able to bring it to life is what clearly differentiates us you know there are so you know in the contrast in our category <clears throat> the biggest selling product is possibly one of the most sell, sold consumer goods in the world and has a really well-known name and is, you know, the second most well-known English word. But there's not a lot of story behind it. There's a lot of cultural kind of relevance. But what we can do is take a colon up, you know, and say this is, where it, this is what's actually in this stuff and this is where it comes from. And that kind of, you know, I know it's a real buzzword, but that kind of authenticity really gets you the conversation. And if you've got that as central to your story, you, you know, you're kind of more useful to someone who's going to have to sell it for you. When we first started doing this in the UK, Albert, who's the chair of our foundation, and I would go around to places, especially one of our kind of collaborators, the Honest Burger team, and be able to show their serving staff exactly what was in the drink. And because not many people knew that story, it was a really great way of engaging with them and kind of giving them a reason to be selling a soft drink beyond it just being a soft drink. And and I think in this world of, you know, trying to find food and drink that's um, you know, better for other reasons than just selling the stuff, having the depth of... of you know, belief in why you're doing it and be able to share that with other people that are going to help you sell it is all you have. Because, you know, we're never going to have marketing budgets that are going to compete with the attention that other brands can get. But, you know, our, I guess our, the secret source for us is actually having a story that goes all the way back to the origins of the ingredient and, yeah. the, and the people that discovered it, you know. I love that as well. Like when I was um, looking at some of the videos of just like how the process you're talking about with like the cola nuts and like, you know, the kind of communities that you're involved in, it's just like so beautiful and it's so authentic and so interesting as well to see the kind of like what you're saying, like the, the kind of natural original source of like what your drink is made from. Can you like tell us like how you kind of got into kind of creating Karma Cola and like a bit about your, a bit about your background, what you were doing beforehand? Yeah, sure. Well, beforehand I did the colouring in for other brands, if you like. Not to belittle it, but my, you know, my, I started working as a designer after sweeping up the floors of a printing press in Christchurch, New Zealand, where I grew up. And I always really loved, you know, uh, you know making pictures uh, and communicating through them. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have grown up in a family who, who did that. My dad's an artist, my mum used to teach art. So it still wasn't an unusual thing to do as a kid, and it turned into me becoming a graphic designer and then kind of growing through commercial design into becoming an art director. And, and I, you know, as I kind of learned more, I got more and more interested in product because it was kind of, you're always presenting something to sell or, or, or make, or an issue. You know, I used to work for Greenpeace as well, trying to encourage people to understand, you know, why they should engage with something. And uh, it, I kind of saw that it's really interesting when the story goes deeper than the label, that you actually have some influence over the way a consumer engages with the thing you're making. And that, that being able to do that, uh, I don't know, I guess it's just the evolution of, of realising that you, could, you can really 
make a difference if you do that well. Um, I was lucky enough to meet my business partners, having worked around the world and gone back to New Zealand where I'm from, at a time when we were all sort of looking at what we might do next in our lives. Chris uh, Morrison and his brother Matt Morrison. Chris had started a pioneering organics drink company in New Zealand called Phoenix Organics, still going, very well known in, in Australasia and, and a, a successful um, organics soft drinks and fruit juice business. And he'd exited that business and we, we shared an interest in this place on the west coast of uh, New Zealand called Piha, where we used to hang out. And one thing led to another, and we ended up talking about Chris's recent trip to Samoa, where he'd seen a lot of fresh organic produce growing but not being sold. Now, 50 years ago, the rural economy of Samoa was supported by things like selling bananas to New Zealand. And that had been pretty much dropped out of the economy for them uh, as uh, food chains became more consolidated. Containerization made it possible to get large amounts of bananas in specially packed boxes from further away and cheaper. Um, one of the things I'd done a wee while ago was working with Greenpeace to campaign for bananas in the, in the Windward Isles. And uh, I'd always been interested in trying to make them more appealing because of where they came from rather than what they were. So we were talking about this and it just seemed a really obvious thing to do to try and reboot that trade. It was quite naive because neither of us, well, I didn't anyway really understand that perishable goods were so volatile. <laughs> and the sort of, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, it'll be really great. People will want to buy bananas that come from Samoa because they're our Pacific neighbours and why wouldn't you? But getting them to a shop in New Zealand from Samoa in, in, a, in the right shape to sell is really hard. Um, the first few, just we, they were Missaluki bananas, ladyfingers, quite small. And they taste best when they're a bit darker than you'd expect them to be. So I took my, my daughter along to, the, to buy the first bunch we could from the little health food shop at the end of our street in Auckland and gave her one and she tasted it and she just spat it out. <laughs> well, it's not oh, such yeah. a good start um, and it was because they were so starchy they hadn't ripened properly anyway we learned a lot and in a short time we had a container coming from a fair trade cooperative in Ecuador to sell because we knew there was a demand for this we just couldn't fulfill it with the quality we needed to now we've been doing that for about 10 years now and we now sell four or five containers of them a week under the brand name All Good and all good meant good for the land, good for the growers, and good for people eating them. Um, and it seemed a really nice, simple way to, 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 to kind of make this virtual circle we're talking about be useful, you know, and create value, f not for us only as business owners, but for everyone involved. Anyway, once we realised that we were in the banana business and still didn't know enough to make it work really well, we thought we'd better start looking at other products. We'd been talking to the Fair Trade Found, uh, Foundation and the, the then leader, Harriet Lamb, about um, whether or not we could get some cola. Because mm -hmm. in, the, in thinking about names for our, for our enterprise, I thought we could do that karma was a really nice way of explaining that virtuous circle, that if you have this relationship with producers, honoured the kind of, you know, all of the actors in that 
in that transaction, including the, 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 the environment they come from, you have a pretty nice way of explaining what you're trying to do and, a, and a, try to balance the commercial side of it with the sort of ethical side of it. And I thought, oh, we could do Karma Cocoa because they grew cocoa in Samoa. We could do Karma Coffee. We could do Karma Chocolate. We could do Karma Coconuts. Karma Cola sounds quite good. I wonder if we could do that. So the name kind of meant, you know, it sounded great. And I thought, oh, I wonder where we get cola from. And we've been talking to Harriet about this. And she knew someone who knew someone. And very shortly we were talking to Albert Tucker, who was in Sierra Leone in Freetown. He's a native of Sierra Leone. And he found a place where we could get some cola from. And, you know, a few weeks after that, we had some cola nuts. And we were experimenting with drinks. Had you considered yourself an entrepreneur before this point? No. Well, I've never called myself that. I mean, I'd thought of, I guess, um, there's a thing that happens in New Zealand because it, you don't, people don't specialise as much as other parts. There was a small population, lots of, a, a sort of idea that you can have a crack at something. It's good and bad, you know. <laughs> you can, like me, be naive and get, get involved in you know, importing bananas without knowing what you're doing. But it also has a, there's something that comes with that um, sort of openness to learn that can be quite helpful. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, every every business we see around us has been created by someone who started off, you know, with an idea. And maybe some had more resources than others. But essentially, you just have to have a crack, right? And mm-hmm. essentially, that's what you're saying. You just sort of put it out there and saw what, what came back. It's funny, you know, it's that whole... I mean, you, you know, everyone asks, so what's the three bits of advice you'd give or whatever? The one I keep coming back to is just starting. Because mm-hmm. no matter how much planning you do for anything like this, it never uh, compensates for what you learn when you're doing it. You know, that idea of rapidly prototyping something so you can see what sort of feedback you get is great because as soon as you're in the game, you're in the market, you're selling something, you can improve it. And it's also like, I think there's like the whole culture of fear of failing and like, you know, you need it to be 100% perfect before it gets put out into the wide world. And you kind of don't really know how it's going to stick as well, even though you think it's going to be amazing and you can do as much market research and know, you know, try to find your audience until you put it out there and try and build that community and audience. It's just always going to stay, you know, in your Excel document or like in your head. So I really agree with that. And so, and so you, the world was very different in kind of 2014 when you formed karma drinks uh, and you know it had very much dominated by the big players yeah. in in the space so how did you go about educating customers about how your brand was different what kind of tactics did you use to you know tell your story in a different way at first having a story made a difference like being newsworthy so uh you know there were a few milestones like because we were we had to kind of over-spec our supply chain's efficacy by setting up the foundation. We originally thought the organic certification and fair trade licence fee would substantiate our claims. And, you know, that's sort of supporting that virtuous circle. We obviously wanted to support those groups because uh, they're also a way of us building our following. Um, But we couldn't get a fair trade certified cola, so we set up our own sort of DIY NGO, uh, which is going quite well now, (laughs) if we say so. It's like I think what we leverage in terms of what effort and resource goes in 
and what we see come out of it is pretty big you know it's I don't know if it's one to ten but it's it's significant so if we look at some of the other actors we work with in those environments especially in Sierra Leone I think we can show that there's a really strong reason to consider that the foundation although there's only a couple of people working in there um, has a really good impact it's a bit hard to get that on the back of a bottle um, but the what we originally got from being unique in this way was you know fair trade saw us as a as a sort of benchmark and awarded us as the fairest fair trader so that that gave us the right to be talking on to news and you know we had a few moments on BBC and things like that that were good good for us and we were trying to find distributors and a lot of them saw that and that opened a few doors for us then as we grow I think you know that's you can only be new news once so the shift then is going from okay so the story's there it's obviously true we're giving evidence every year we're sort of report or every quarter we're showing you know how many young women have been educated because we've been able to fund that how many more bits of infrastructure we've been able to build those sorts of things are kind of our uh, a habit we've got into in our comms to sh- just to keep people engaged in what we're doing especially trade so that you know that having helped us like with the specials we've done with Honest Burgers some good has been done and that yeah. reinforces the karma idea but I think the challenge for us now is that we need to take that to another level we need to probably localise it more there's um, you know what's relevant and you're probably seeing this too to customers in the markets that we should be selling the most and slightly different these days the idea of um, being able to support your own values in your own community is very strong fair trade is I hate to say this but I, you know they're incredibly good organisation in that you know we see so many product lines like chocolate and cocoa and bananas obviously um, tea that have enabled large amounts of growing communities to become financially independent mm-hmm. through fair trade but you can see how the coffee businesses are kind of growing out of that now you know trying to temper it with direct trade you know even big supermarkets are choosing to use different certifications so that's been a challenge for us is understanding how we navigate through so many different third party substantiations of our claims you know mm-hmm. should we be B Corp should we be uh, you know how, do we, how, how far do we take our organic certification non-GMO we've got so many things we can use to prove we are who we are <laughs> And there's a cost with those. The, the truth is, we're a fizzy drink. You know, we're not... Fizzy drinks aren't going to save the world. <laughs> but but you can use a fizzy drink to exercise your interest in being part of a world that needs a bit of saving. You know? So, you know, change your consum- your behaviour by buying ours and you, you can do some good, but we're not going to pretend that fizzy drinks are 
you know, they're important. <laughs> but it's a great alternative, though. That's the thing. It's like, you know, compared to kind of like some of, you know, the alternatives, like you're, what you're doing is much cleaner as well. And I think it is, I think it's about people reflecting on like what they're consuming. Yeah, I understand you're saying you can't change the world with a fizzy drink, but I think you're planting that seed and then all the community work you're doing surrounding it. I think it's just, I think it's great. And I think what you were saying before about how there's so many different ways to kind of prove that you're organic and fair trade and that you're sustainable and, um, and I think as a when you're a small business obviously you'd love to be b corp for example like we've been speaking about you know going b corp but coming along with that is like you need extra resources and it's you know fine it's you know there's a lot more financial kind of aid that you need to to make that happen and that's obviously a goal to have but are you seeing like kind of larger you're talking you were talking about some of kind of the supermarkets and you know other industries are you seeing that in the drink space that kind of larger you know um, kind of soft drink giants are you know becoming more sustainable and taking it more seriously or do you feel like there is um, a bit of greenwashing happening in that space i think you know the largest contributor to plastics in our oceans are selling a lot of drinks right Mm -hmm. um but the you know the the sort of david attenborough moment has forced everyone to rethink that like packaging is the hot button right if you're packaging a drink in plastic, you're evil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, not that we try and leverage that as a, an advantage to us, but we aren't. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to go, if you're in this for the right reasons, how do you change to be doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Now, we still have a little bit of plastic in our, in our packaging and we're trying to get rid of all of it. And, you know, the, the great thing about a B Corp program is that it does monitor those sorts of behaviours and resources in your business and give you a kind of way of scoring it so you can improve it. And, you yeah. know, to answer your question, the change in the last six years is that there is an ado- a sort of more a wholesale adoption of these sorts of um, processes to prove, you know, with action or output that you are making a difference rather than claiming it. So, you know, greenwashing is getting harder and harder mm-hmm. because there's more data. And also, you just see it being washed up. Um, you know, the, the evidence is pretty f- profound. So being able to show that you're worth more as, an in- as a product because you create less impact is the key. And commercially, that's always been our challenge spend more money on us and we'll do less damage so with every mission driven business there's a real balance between keeping your ethics at the core of the business as you get mainstream how do you continue to uphold your values as a company whilst making sure the brand competes on price and makes a profit that is a real challenge and i Mm. think it's it's never solved it's kind of the sort of thing you just have to keep asking you know would we produce an oat milk that isn't organic well we've had to because we can't, we should, our values should be 100% organic, but it's been so difficult for us to get organically certified oat production at scale in order to do this, that we thought the better compromise was to start producing it and work towards becoming that. Otherwise, we miss the opportunity. It's something I think, you you know, a, a company like Method, who are very good at this, always have that philosophy like we're going to do a great job we're going to make um biodegradable cleaning products you know and we're going to not use surfactants that are, that don't break down 
But we're going to have to get there incrementally. <laughs> because if we don't start somewhere, it's that starting thing, we'll never get there. So not trying to make an apology for not being 100%, you know, pure. But I think it's important that you balance those things out. And that's often a case-by-case -case thing. So, you know, we're looking at B Corp at the moment. We've already done a preliminary assessment. Uh, looks like we should do it. The cost externally isn't high. The internal resource cost, as you've discovered, is pretty high. We've got to make, we've got to really focus on the things that we can improve on and be seen to be making improvements. So the commitment there is a, almost a cultural one. And there's no doubt that people want to do it within the organisation. We just have to make the time to do it. So those are the kinds of challenges to, you know, stay commercial or become more com commercially competitive while embracing these values. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, uh, you know, the great thing is that knowing other people are valuing it externally and buying your products because of it is the real return. Although it seems, you know, brutally commercial, we're still trying to justify a marginally higher shelf price for all these values. So if, if that's tangible and people are believing it as consumers and they're, you know, they're prepared to pay for it, then we're we're okay. But we'll always have a quite a high cost of good because of that, you know, a transparent supply chain, understanding that we're, we're wherever we can paying for organically grown goods, which is, you know, never at price parity. And then okay. supporting our foundation with money from the sale before we, you know, before the wholesale price. So all of that's magnified through the margin tree. And yeah. And it's really interesting we're talking about just getting started because opportunities are fleeting. Sometimes if you know you sit on the fence for too long, you say, wait until it's perfect, that opportunity can, can go. So yeah, and, and the adaptation too. Like once you start, you'll probably evolve you know, beyond where you thought you were going. You, you've got a script, but you're really kind of, it's a script to ad lib a bit to, your business plan, whatever that might be. So, I, I mean, you know, I think having faith and, and trust in you know, the people you're working with and that those values are, are what kind of bind you together gets you yeah. a long way. But you've got to keep interrogating them. Uh, and in terms of, like, finding those people to work with and um, recruiting people to the business, how do you go about finding people who are so on board with the mission and really get what you guys are about. Because when we're speaking to you, it's very clear your passion, your passion for this goes beyond just selling some oat milk or selling a few cans of Coke. It's very much about the social change element of what you're doing. So how do you go about yeah, identifying those people and finding people who are a good fit? In the beginning, and we've gone through a few stages in our evolution this way, you, if you're doing this sort of thing and people know about it, you're a kind of magnet to those that value what you do, you know, that want to work for you. You get a lot of people saying, I really want to work for a business that puts people and planet before profit or, you know, however we think about that, which is gratifying, but it's not necessarily always the right hiring decision. And as you become, as I've become more aware of the things we have to be good at, and this changes you know, date, not daily, but, but frequently enough as we learn more about what we're, you know, collectively about where we're going and how, you know, we might, we're, how we're transitioning from selling into certain channels into new ones. There's always a lot to learn. And often the best way to do it is to find people who already know about it. So the, the balance is always, I don't know if this is an easy answer, is you've got to find that, um, 
the belief, you know, the values and the competency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not easy. That's it. But it is a really good challenge because they're out. There are great people out there. It's, it's, It's sort of the challenge of growing is that you do need to be able to talk the talk with some of, you know, if you're trying to get into a big supermarket, helps if you've been in one before. Yeah. You know, otherwise you do spend a lot of time just trying to bang down the wrong door. Yeah. So, and that's where, you know, my advice to other people who might be a bit earlier in this stage in their journey than we are at the moment is there are some, there is a lot of this experience out there in advisory capacity. You know, it's good to, it's good to ask a lot of questions of people like that and to, um, and to really get clear on how to build those relationships. Because, yeah. um, you know, we've, we've, again, we've been fortunate. We're in, you know, some of those big chains have really uh, taken to us and wanted to be supportive. But there's still, there's still a way of doing it that's, you know, efficient and economic. And, you know, there's a bit of a science behind it you need to know to really be able to make it work. Definitely. Ever-evolving process. Yeah. <laughs> With um, creating a product, taste has to be key in order to get return customers. How long does the process normally take for you with your products from when you first start experimenting to when you launch a product? And do you have any kind of tips for other food entrepreneurs listening to this podcast on how they can speed that process up? So the shortest we've done is three months. But again, it relies on a lot of experience. Yeah, and the th- you know it's funny because you're sequencing a whole bunch of things when you're doing product development. One is is the idea strong enough to to be able to be understood so that everyone can actually make it happen. So that's a lot around the objective of the program. What does it taste like? How you know what are we? Who's the customer? And we've been pretty uh, how do you say um, kind of we've done this freestyle a lot. You know, because we do have some of that experience and haven't had to have too much process. But it's also, it's, it's, it's hurt us, to be honest, to not to have process as well. Like, you know, uh, when we're not synced up well and we've got a product but we don't have a, a way of presenting it and that they're not really in sync, there's a lot of frustration because, you know, we've got a recipe but we don't know what we're going to call it or we've got an idea for a product, we don't know how to formulate it. You know, you're always going to have those sort of things that you've got to keep in step with each other. When you're distributed around the world, I mean, we've developed product from the UK in New Zealand or for the UK in New Zealand and had to have our tasting couriered backwards and forwards. So you've got to communicate well, you've got to understand the nuance across the markets and the sort of way we're operating. I guess the advice is, Get really clear on the on who it's for early, because we've often just gone it's for us, and that's that's totally valid. You know, people like us is a good target audience. Um, it's just knowing that there's enough of them out there, and yeah. the occasion it'll be for, and price point, all that normal stuff that you that when you're in our position you kind of can overlook because you just go, oh, we can make that, let's just do it. You know? Yeah. Um. So you know that's important, but. In terms of, like for us, our flavours are experience of the team and really good partners. You know, if we come up with something, we have to know that we can make it in large quantities eventually. And that even at the small batch stage when we're prototyping, we need to know that we can get that scale. So we use a flavour house to help us with that. 
you know, we can't own a factory, so we have someone making stuff for us, but we own the recipe. I love the idea of a flavor house. Yeah, it's great. That's really cool. That'd be a cool, cool place to work. Yeah, well, that, these are the, <laughs> this is the secret of this world, is that there's very few consumer goods products that don't have some external food technology assistance. Yeah. And, it, you know, not everyone can afford to have that in-house. So we'll get all the ingredients and we'll work out what the balance of flavors and things should be, but we'll, we'll use someone that we know can help make sure that those flavors are always going to be consistently put together. Very cool. One thing I'd like to touch upon, there's obviously been some big acquisitions that have happened in the drinks industry over the past sort of 10 years, I guess. And obviously the acquisition of Innocent by Coca-Cola was a massive one in that world. Yeah. Is this something in the future, if this came along for you guys, is this something you would want to do? Or do you see yourselves as, you know, just building a business for the next 20 or 30 years? That's a dream or is it? A lot of that's around speed. So mm. if you think about it, that there are people, there are, there are companies out there that already have uh, manufacturing, distribution, a whole bunch of things that we don't have. And they work and they're, in it, they're economic, you know? Yeah. So if our motive is to get as many of these drinks into people's hands and sell them so we can do the good through the foundation, then getting scale through using through being able to use other people's infrastructure, for me, seems like a reasonably okay move. I don't think we'd do it with... <laughs> I haven't spoken directly to those people, so I can't, I can't be an authority on that, but... You know, you go, that, that, that might be where we need to go. It'd be great to think we could do it on our own, but we can't, you know, we're not that. We just don't have all that skill and capability. I mean, we've got it in, to, in individuals, but we just, when you know, if you go to one of these big manufacturing plants, they are, you know, overwhelmingly large. Yeah. Where we get our cans made and where we used to get them made in Italy, you could drive 10 minutes from one end of this warehouse to, of this factory to the other. It's just, and they make cans for these big drink companies. Insane. You know, they do ours in, in hours. You know, they're running these can manufacturing campaigns for other companies for weeks. Wow. And we get a window every eight weeks to be able to make some cans if we want to make them. You've got two hours, go. <laughs> right. And that makes a lot for us. Yeah. But you know what? That's just a drop in the ocean. So it's, oh. that, it's knowing that, you know, when there are a couple of billion colas consumed a day, you know, we'd be lucky to have sold that many in our entire lifetime. The scale is just... So, but, but you think, well, if we're a little bit of that and we can get some scale, we can be really constru you know, productive and benefit the people we're doing it for. So... I feel there's nothing wrong in having that ambition. It's just figuring out how, at what speed and how, and if anyone else is actually interested in doing that. Yeah. How to navigate that. No, I, th I think it's a really great outlook to have. And um, yeah, good on you. I think it's exciting time. Yeah, mega exciting. And so what are your dreams for the future for both Karma Cola and yourself on a personal level? I think, that, I mean, the thing I've had... The, the, well, the moments I've had doing this that, have, that are the most memorable are things like visiting the growers or the people we work with in Sierra Leone and thinking, wow, we're responsible for some of this. And it still feels like that's, you know, the, the best outcome is that that is durable enough to carry on. You know, whatever happens, you want to make sure those things that we've, otherwise we're sort of, we're, you know, it's, 
it's a story that that you know has an end and we don't really want it to um it's also pretty important for us to be able to and this is one of the things we're going through at the moment is just to to to, to bring other people into the business to help grow it yes. you know we've just got a new ceo on board um a guy called ben dando who's been with us he's probably had the most interesting 30 days first 30 days he's on day 34 today <laughs> so if you imagine what it would have been like to come and work for us and go wow you know this is a brand that i'm really interested in and then and the week that you start COVID 19 hits and i mean I've, I've sort of been alluding to this through this conversation but he's had a pretty interesting time for a month and is doing incredibly well like oh, i'm so pleased we have the team we have because that's what makes it possible to get through something like this and also it gives me a lot of kind of um, optimism for our future but that's the you know that's also the thing for me is that as a founder of the business you kind of want to be there and I you know fiddle with everything and actually it's better to let other people get on with it great so now we have some quick fire questions we ask every guest on the podcast right. just answer them really quickly kind of uh, one or two lines uh, don't dwell on them too much so I'll kick off why do you get up in the morning I like my work. I do like it. Um, I also get up to, you know, make tea for my partner and make sure the kids are okay. At the moment, I get up to try and make some bread, if I can find that yeast. But, <laughs> my, but I do, you know, from a work perspective, I do like, I do love doing it, you know. That's, That's great. great. What problem are you trying to solve with your business? Uh, currently, just getting through this. You know, it is a kind of, uh, all hands on deck what do we have to do immediately to make sure we're in good shape the you know the two big challenges around you know our big focus at the moment is how long can we last and how much do we need yeah so what resources had the biggest impact on your business it's interesting you know a while ago i would have said all the inputs like the you know do we have everything we need because we've been having stock outages we've just we couldn't quite get the demand to supply thing working with the contractors and others we use. But now I'd say it's demand. You know, it mm -hmm. really is, you know, again, immediately the issue is what channels are we, can we be available in? And we're rethinking the way we think of our performance in terms of building new ways of being available to people. It's that whole thing we started with, you know, we've got to have to become di digital or much better at online sales almost overnight. What are your top three books or podcasts you recommend to entrepreneurs? I really like, there's a Malcolm Gladwell one called Revisionist History. I don't know if it's good for entrepreneurs, but I quite like his view on insights that have made you think differently about, you know, phenomena that have happened. I, you know, I find that really quite inspiring. There's a thing, a podcast called Intelligence Squared that is also... You know, it's just a great, um, it, it's great in that it's got a very wide ranging, you know, variety of topics, but they are, you know, there's a lot around sustainability these days, a lot around, um, you know, the way we adjust our consumption to be able to be sustainable, including, you know, plant-based, um, you know, energy, uh, and, and more recently, you know, global pandemics, but a really great range of... Um, of provocative um, interviews and conversations, I still I still quite like Business Week. You know, that's the yeah. I get I get that on my iPad. I read that a bit. 
So what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your business? You know, I come from a very creative background and I know where I think I can be able to add value and where I can't. And learning from the stuff that uh, may not be as obvious to me is really important. And that's, a, that's tricky because I feel like I'm, I'm a bit old to be learning that, but, you know, you're always learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome so far? I think, you know, I, there is a sort of, for me personally, just being, again, resilience is important. Like that whole thing of being able to kind of keep a constant view, relationship with the people you work with, I guess it's a mental health issue. Like that, one of those things is just staying. I don't know, finding a, a where a place that you can operate well, uh, and feel like you know you're you're not deluding anyone, including yourself. If that makes sense. And so, lastly, what do you do to keep yourself sane? Because I don't. I used to get up, walk to work. I'd have it take me about an hour, so I could have all the conversations or arguments I needed to have with myself before I got to work. <laughs> Now I get up and I'm lucky enough to be in North London so uh, I still have a government mandated exercise routine. <laughs> so I'll get in and run around a park or walk and run around a park and that has got to be the thing that I have to make myself do more of because it's, it's, you know, first it's great to be outside. It's a good time of year to be getting the fresh air too. It's quite nice to have a chance. And, you know, that's my time to think stuff through or just have a rest, you know. We were saying that we're getting more fresh air now than we probably did beforehand because we're like actively like wanting to like go for a walk. Whereas before we would like just sometimes work throughout the day and realise we haven't really like gone out for a, a walk. I said to Judy yesterday, I said, I think I've lo lost weight for my mandated government walk. <laughs> see, see, that's the great thing about scarcity, that it really shows, gives you a way of valuing something. That That's it. That's a wrap. So where can where can people connect with you where can they connect with simon and where can they find out more about karma drinks and all good so the karma karma drinks.co is got most of our stuff i mean there's a film in there of the story of what we do in sierra leone um if you want to buy anything uh ocado waitrose amazon um just google karma drinks and there'll be plenty of options i think you know we're available in terms of the stories we tell and the things you can get just through the magic of the internet for now. Yeah, and, so um, yeah. you know, I think our social media feeds, you know, jump on Instagram, see what we're up to. There's always something going on there. Great. Great. Look, it's fantastic. It's been great to talk to you about it. It's such an interesting story and um, we look forward to seeing you guys continue to grow and be successful. I really appreciate it and thanks for having me on in this virtual studio it's been great <laughs> hi plant planners thanks for listening to this episode of the plant-based business podcast it was produced by feevolution and this series is hosted by myself damien clarkson and my co-host judy nadell before we go today i have a quick favor to ask at feevolution we believe in the power of business to positively impact the planet this is why we created the podcast to help accelerate the good work you're all doing in making the world a better place. But we need your support to keep this community going. We've created a new plant-based business community over on Patreon. For just a few pounds a month, you can support the show and growing and help us to shine a light on the plant-based businesses changing the world. 
so please head on over to www.patreon.com slash plantbasedbusiness and show your support for this podcast and the free content we create. Also, please remember to share this episode in your favourite social network. I can't tell you how much things like reviews and social shares help us and our mission to tell the world about the growth of the plant-powered business movement. You can find us on Instagram at plantbasedbusiness underscore and at feedvolution underscore. Okay, keep safe and we'll see you all again soon.